Now, as we reflect upon what you have done for us and the sacrifice that you've given, we ask that you would bless these these uh, offerings as they are um, given and bless each uh, gift, each giver. And uh, um, we pray that uh, those things that are that we have today that are that are given in this plate, that uh, they will be used for your kingdom work. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. He was a teacher. He performed hundreds of miracles in the name of God and through God's power in front of thousands and thousands of people. And some people began to question, you know, is this, uh, isn't this Jesus? Isn't this the son of Joseph, the, the carpenter? And, and still others said, this man is demon-possessed. And the chief priests, they, they didn't like him at all. I mean, they were the ones who gave him to Pilate. I mean, one day they were praising him like he was a king, and the other day, just, uh, just a couple days later, they were dem- demanding that he be killed like he was some sort of a common criminal. And that there were some who really believed that he had come to save Israel. There were some who really believed that he was, in fact, the Son of God. And then they stood at a distance in disbelief and they watched him die. And then after he died, a number of events took place. Literally, the sun was covered over and the the sun was covered over and there was darkness that for that entire day. And then there was this earthquake that that literally shook the foundations of the earth. And then in the temple, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from that holy place was literally ripped in two. And that's not all. The Gospel writer Luke records that there were some women that went to the tomb, and when they got there, they found that the stone had been rolled away and that the body was gone. The body of Jesus. The tomb was empty. And while they were wondering about all of this, Luke says that there were two angels that appeared and said to the woman, He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. And when the women went and told the disciples about this, the disciples didn't believe them. I mean, dead people don't raise from the dead. They don't get up and and walk, do they? And so they had to find find out for themselves. And... Luke says that Peter ran to the tomb and he found only some strips of linen. He discovered that what the women said were true, that the tomb was empty, that the body was gone. 
And I love the way that Luke shares the end of that. He wondered, that's what it says. He wondered, he wondered to himself, what could this mean? What could this mean? Well, only everything, right? Absolutely everything. You, you, you know why we're here. There is no hiding Easter Sunday morning that the topic of the message is going to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I've described to you in the, the first is, is just simply the first part of Luke chapter 24. I invite you to look at that, to, to turn there. There's more, there's more to it. Luke chapter 24. We're going to spend some time in that particular text this morning just thinking about the things that those disciples on the road to Emmaus must have had to wrestle with on that particular morning. What an incredible statement they must have been thinking about when they heard the woman say that the tomb is empty. And you know, it makes every difference in the world. You, you can't read the New Testament without coming face to the face with the fact that, that all of Christianity hangs and falls on that one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, You'll, uh, if you just keep that passage open, uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, just briefly turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, he comes to the end of this letter. He's answering a, answering a series of questions. This is the last question that he will address. And apparently those particular Christians had questions about the resurrection. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and look at verse number 12, starting with verse number 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then, though, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If Christ is not raised, if Christ is not raised, preaching is vain. Faith is vain. You are still in your sins. Luke chapter 24 it's, uh, is a fascinating statement uh, to close out the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this, this particular writer has focused on his, uh, focused his attention upon the history of the life of Jesus on earth. And, and there are some fascinating connections, I think, between the, the first part of this book of Luke and, and, and the last part of this book. In fact, if you look at chapter, Luke chapter 24 and you think about these particular words, Verse number 13, when he's, uh, verse number 13, we'll start there. Luke chapter 20, 24, starting with verse 14, or I'm sorry, 13. 
Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along, uh, walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I want us to just briefly think about that story. Two men on the way to, uh, they're on their way out of, uh, of Jerusalem, missing Jesus after a Passover feast. Does that sound at all familiar to the way that the Gospel of Luke begins? A Passover feast and two people leaving Jerusalem, Joseph and Mary, and what are they looking for? Jesus. And they can't find him. And when, when they do find him, do, do, you know what he, do you remember what he says? Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? That's what Jesus said in the temple that day as a young boy. And what does Jesus say to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Did you not understand that this had to happen? See, Luke is so abundantly clear in how he wraps up his gospel in these stories, there is such a clear echo. For example, in Luke chapter 24, look at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I mean, it's such a clear echo of what Annas uh, said in the temple grounds the day that Jesus was brought in order to be christened, to be anointed as a child. This is the one who comes to bring the redemption of Israel. There's an interesting passage here in Luke chapter 24. Um, look at verse 29. But they urged him strongly. Stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when we, he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. That phrase, their eyes were, were opened. Now, 
you're going to have to think about this one just for a little bit. I mean, you have to go back about a couple of months ago when we started our series here, looking at God's story, when we're looking at uh, going from Genesis to Revelation uh, and looking at how God puts His story together. But I want you to think back to the beginning of that, of our series, back to the beginning of Genesis. What happened when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What's the first thing that was said? Anybody? Their eyes were opened. It's almost as if Luke has pulled Genesis together with Jesus and said, now your eyes can really be opened to a new creation. This marvelous story has been implied to communicate to us that this new creation has begun, that the long exile of Israel, the long exile of God's people has now come to a conclusion. The resurrection, all of life, hangs on the truth of resurrection. And what Jesus does in this particular text is he simply takes these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and he tries to convince them that what they have already heard about Jesus is in fact true. And what I want to do today is I just want to briefly illustrate what Jesus did in proving who he was. On this resurrection day, 2018, I simply want to address three questions that were posed by Lee Strobel in in his book, A Case for Easter. He raises three questions. One, was Jesus really dead? Two, was the tomb really empty? And number three, was he really seen after his death and his resurrection? Three questions that were, were raised. The first question, I think, is really pretty simple, don't you? Was Jesus really dead? According to this text, anyway, that's, it's true, right? Luke chapter 24, verse 20, The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Was he really dead? Strobel entertains a conversation with Alexander Metherill, who was the Cook County coroner, he was an expert in uh, CSI-like work. Here are the things that he says in trying to establish whether or not Jesus was really dead. Because, you see, one of the options was that he never really died. He was put in a tomb, still slightly alive, and the cool dampness of the tomb allowed him to revive. Well, we'll come to that in a second. But he says that the Roman flogging was enough virtually to kill a man all by itself. The cat of nine tails in which were embedded pieces of bone and, and glass intended, intended to really literally rip a man's body to shreds. Often, according to Roman history, people died at the flogging. The record of their bodies was often that their internal organs were left visible to him, human sight. According to this particular doctor, more than likely Jesus would have already been into into hypovolemic uh, shock because of blood loss. His body would have simply begun the process of shutting down to almost nothing. Having done that, they then laid him on a cross and they drove nine-inch spikes into his wrists and his feet, probably about right there so that he wouldn't be able to slip off the cross. 
Then they stood that cross upright and, and jolted it down in, in, into the hole. Death came primarily by, asphyxi by asphyxiation. You couldn't hold yourself up and so, you could, so that you could breathe, and so you would push with your hands and your and, and as hard as, or with, push with your feet as, as hard as you could to elevate your body to get the weight off of your chest so that, so that uh, your abdomen could take in air. But the pain would be so incredible that you would then slump back down again and taking all of the air out of your system and then you couldn't breathe again and then you'd start that whole process back all over again. But it's interesting, uh, a real interesting side note here, the kind of pain that we assume that Jesus endured was excruciating. Excruciating. Do you know where that term, that word comes from? It's a Latin word from out of the cross. Excruciating. What ultimately happens is, is that there is this irregular heartbeat that occurs because of the lack of respiratory abilities and a man simply suffocates. For those of you who have read your Bibles, you know that they came along and they normally would have broken the legs of the people who were hanging there in order to help them, uh, to help them die. In other words, they, so, so that they couldn't uh, push themselves up again to take another breath. They didn't do that to Jesus because he was already dead. In order to test it, they ran a spear into his side in, in, in which they, uh, and, and then they saw the water and, the, and they saw the blood running out. And according to the doctor, that's a normal course of events for this kind of an experience. There are those who say he really didn't die, that he merely swooned and was unconscious when they put him into the tomb. If that's true, then you have, to, you have some really serious questions to answer. Like, how did a man in that kind of a condition, after laying there without food, without water, for, for uh, three days, how did he manage to push that stone back up the ramp that it had been rolled down so that it would not be able to be moved easily out of place? And once he did that, how did he fight off a Roman guard armed and trained to keep people from leaving places? And if that's true, if he did manage to accomplish that and he accomplished getting away from the soldiers, tell me how a man in that condition walked seven miles to Emmaus and carried on a conversation where people didn't look at him as if he were some kind of a mangled mess. Dr. William Edwards wrote an article in 1986 in a journal of the American Medical Association, in which his conservative opinion was this. There's three simple words, or three single words, summarizing that whole entire article, and here's what he said. Jesus was dead. I mean, that's a harsh reality, but it's a true reality, and it's a necessary reality. Jesus had to die if he was going to accomplish for us the redemption that you and I needed. But then the question becomes then, well, was the tomb really empty? Did he raise from the dead? And, and, and there's, some, there's multiple arguments against that particular thing. One is, as I mentioned earlier, the swoon theory, he, that he simply woke up and he left. I, I think we can kind of dismiss that one as being utterly ridiculous. 
Uh, there's a second option, and that is that they went to the wrong tomb. That's what some have suggested, that in their condition, or in their confusion, on that particular morning, that they managed to find the wrong tomb on the hillside. Well, I suppose that there could be some credence, credence to that, but, but don't you suppose that since the Roman soldiers were going to die for losing the body, that they had gone to the wrong tomb, because they'd gone to the wrong tomb, don't you think that those soldiers would have produced the body in a heartbeat just to, keep, to, to save their own lives? If it were the wrong tomb, do you, do you not think that the Jewish chief priests and the scribes who put him to death in, in the first place would have gone, not gone to the correct tomb and produced his body so that they could stop the speculation about, about the resurrection? Well, maybe somebody just hid the body so that they could then go back and retrieve it later. Well, the question you have to answer then is what are you going to do with what are you going to do with those soldiers? How are you going to get the body away from them? And, and again, if, if there was a body hidden somewhere, you, you would have to assume that the Jews or the Romans would have immediately been ready to produce it. And quite honestly, the disciples didn't expect a resurrection. Uh, you notice that when, when they went to the tomb looking for a body. They weren't anticipating to find an empty space, so they wouldn't have hit it because they weren't anticipating resurrection anyway. Well, maybe the possibility is that the body is just still there. Well, if that's true, then you've got to explain the third question. Did he appear to all of those people? And when, I, when you and I read, when, we, when you... When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you are struck by how many people he appeared to. He appeared to the women. He appeared to James. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to the 11. He appeared to 500 at once. He appeared to, to a, number, uh, uh, a number of years later. He appeared to the Apostle Paul when he was still a persecuting Jewish leader. Those multiple appearances in multiple settings on multiple occasions would refute the fact that somebody said that he didn't show up when he was supposed to. Now I realize that that doesn't necessarily have to convince you. I'm here to simply proclaim on Easter Sunday morning, 2018, that the truth of the matter is Jesus was really dead, the tomb was really empty, and yes, he did. He really did appear to a lot of different people on a lot of different occasions, and the reason is because he was, in fact, raised from the dead. But that could be just speculation. It, it could be my opinion versus anybody else's opinion in the entire world. I, I understand that that is true, that is a possibility. But the one thing that you have to wrestle with, the one thing that you have to deal with in light of that information is, how do you explain the early church? How do you explain that? Is this, if this is all, of a ho- all a hoax, how do you explain the fact that an entirely Jewish community, they gave up their most sacred day, 
the fourth of ten commandments, something that they had honored for 1,500 years, and in a matter of less than a week, they turned it over from Saturday to Sunday and began to worship on a different day. How do you explain that? How do you explain the transformation of lives from people like a man like Saul, who was persecuting Christians, into a man who was willing to give up his life for the sake of becoming and helping others to become Christians? How do you explain the presence of the church that has over the course of the last 2,000 years endured persecution and has never been hurt, has never been stopped? How do you explain the fact that around the, the world all of history is measured in A.D. and B.C., before Christ and after? How do you explain that without the resurrection? How do you explain your own transformed lives? without the resurrection. How do you explain that? I mentioned Keith Green here earlier. How do, you, how do you explain your transformed life? That would be my question. How do you explain what happened to you, what happened to, to your loved ones, to your spouse, to your family members? How, how do you explain that outside of the presence of Jesus Christ, how do you explain that outside of the resurrection? N.T. Wright wrote this little book um, on the resurrection. It started out to actually be about a 70-page book. It turned out to be about 700-plus pages. This sermon started out to be 11 minutes, and we'll see how long it lasts. Um, N.T. Wright says this, and I have the quote up on the screen for you. He says, the actual body bodily resurrection of Jesus clearly provides a sufficient condition of the tomb being empty and the appearances taking place. In other words, once you grant that Jesus was raised from the dead, all of the pieces of the historical jigsaw puzzle of early Christianity begin to fall into place. He's saying that the resurrection is sufficient evidence to explain all of the history of the church coming to, into existence. But he goes even one more step further. Here's what he says. He says, my claim is even stronger, that the bodily resurrection of Jesus provides a necessary condition for these things. In other words, there is no other explanation that will do. All of the efforts to find alternative explanations fail and they are bound to do so. What he's telling you is this. You try to come up with any other explanation for what has happened since Jesus rose from the dead and you will discover that there is no single explanation available that makes any sense out of the history of the church except the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I say, my friends, He is risen. And your response is what? Amen. The only response for you and me is that because He lives, I also will live. You also will live. So as we close out our service today, we want to celebrate that. 
So I invite you to stand with me and, as, and just to celebrate as we sing this last song, because, or I live, I live because He is risen. I live, I live with power, with power over sin. Let's pray together, or let's, uh, let's sing together.